I'm Archbishop Alan Vigneron of the Archdiocese of Detroit, and this is the Eyes on Jesus podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Eyes on Jesus podcast with Archbishop Alan Vigneron. I'm your host, Mike Chamberlain. And I'm your host, Mary Wilkerson. We are excited to release new episodes once a month, so please make sure to subscribe and review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Archbishop, we're so happy to have you back uh, uh, once again. How have you been, and how's your Lent been so far? My Lent has been uh, quite good, been trying to uh, live up to my resolutions. Uh, I happened to read a uh, commentary from uh, last Wednesday that said, okay, it's one week, how are we doing? And I thought, mm-hmm. well, you know, catching my breath. It's a marathon, yeah. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, yes, it's so not good. a sprint. You just got to, that's right. You got to take it one week or day at a time. So well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that's, that's going so great. well for you so far. Well, I'm very grateful for the grace that God offers. I often think about how many Lents I've lived through and the different uh, oh, approaches I've taken over, over the years. What Lent, Lent has meant so many different things to me depending on where I am in the course of my life. I think that's true for most mm. of us. Mm. Yeah, I know it's for, true for me, for sure, yeah. Has there a particular Lent that sticks out to you, Archbishop? Maybe because of some, uh, something you adopted or something you gave up or something? Um, a Lent I think about very often is uh, one when I was a seminarian in Rome, and I, uh, you know, the the Roman Church has had from uh, the patristic period, late patristic period, uh, designated parish churches for a daily mass, and I used to mm. try and go to those churches. So awesome. those are vivid memories of uh, one way to keep Lent. Mm. Well, as we've uh, moved through Lent, we had a tragedy occur, and we've been mourning the lives lost in the events that happened at Michigan State um, last week. Alexandria Werner and Brian Frazier, parishioners at AOD Parishes, and Ariel Anderson lost their lives in in this tragedy. I wanted to ask you briefly, Archbishop, how can Catholics respond to something like this so heavy and um, such deep trauma? How... What should be our disposition, or how should we approach things like this? To begin with uh, an awareness that God can bring good and will bring good out of evil, and so we ask him to help us find the possibility of grace that uh, occurs in this really uh, awful, uh, heinous kind of heinous crime. And what are some of those things that uh, God is inviting us to do? Uh, first of all, to pray for uh, those who lost their lives and to pray for those who mourn. Uh, I think uh, to uh, also uh, think about whatever uh, are appropriate uh, actions in the sphere of the civil order uh, mm-hmm. that need to happen and we as citizens need to support uh, for uh, the, sa- the, the safety of all of us. There's a whole variety of attitudes and views among uh, well-disposed uh, people about what the, a proper practical course of action is, and we need to talk about them as a, as a citizenry and, and come to some consensus. Mm-hmm. So I think it's both uh, prayer and it's action. They're, they're yeah. very important. And of course, anyone who really is uh, connected with the uh, the families of the departed to offer them support. And I'd ask, also ask people to think about offering support to 
the priests and the parish teams that were intimately involved mm -hmm. in um, in the funerals and in caring for the family. Um, both priests, uh, uh, Father Richter and Father Bilo, are really fine pastors, and I know they put themselves out most generously to support mm -hmm. these families in their time of trial, and I, I hope that uh, all of us can support them in supporting uh, those who mourn and have loss. Yeah. Thanks for sharing those words. Um, it's comforting to hear your reflections and, and in a particular way, the call to action, but also being with the families in prayer. I know there was a beautiful prayer service um, one evening for the young man, um, Brian, and also the funeral mass for Alexandria. And I know there's been so much prayer regarding uh, Ariel as well. So uh, it's a way that we can stay deeply connected and supporting, even if you know we're not intimately connected with the family, to be able to support them in that way, I think is so important. So thanks, Dr. Bishop. You're welcome. I know also just uh, just last week, in fact, or just the very beginning of Lent, we celebrated the rite of election. And so, so many of our Catholics, you know, if they were, you know, baptized at infants and they'd just been raised in the faith, they may not be that familiar with what the rite of election exactly is. Maybe they'd never experienced it before. Uh, so Archbishop, would you mind just kind of sharing a little bit about the rite of election and uh, who participates in it and, and what, it's all, what it's all about? Well, the rite is uh, for the very first uh, weekend, the, the first Sunday in Lent is typically the, it, it can extend a little later, but it really should be the first Sunday in Lent. And it's an official recognition that uh, those who have been catechumens, those who have been preparing to enter the church, those who are getting ready to be baptized, confirmed, and receive the Holy Eucharist at the Paschal Vigil, uh, they are officially recognized as uh, uh, destined for that. So it's uh, until that time, the catechumens have been saying, we aspire to this, we've made up our mind, this is the path we want to follow. We want to be disciples of Jesus in the Catholic Church. And uh, at the rite of election, the bishop says, uh, you've uh, prepared yourself, and now you are chosen the church recognizes that the Holy Spirit has been working in you, and uh, you are in your last. You are chosen for the uh, the Paschal sacraments, and you will be uh, initiated at the Paschal vigil. We also use this occasion to confirm uh, th those who are already baptized. Uh, we have we respect their baptism. These could be people who are part of a, a non-Christian, non-Catholic community. And they also could be people who, while they were baptized in the Catholic Church, have never completed their initiation, uh, never been confirmed, never made their first Holy Communion. And so these are called candidates for full communion, full initiation. And we have a, a, a secondary ceremony for them at the cathedral as well. But one of the great joys for me to do this is that I can't baptize all of these people at the Easter Vigil. I can't be in all these places. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But we bishops, the auxiliary bishops help me with uh, some other, we do four ceremonies. Um, it's an opportunity for the bishop to be intimately involved in uh, the initiation of the members of the church. Oh. It's a great occasion. And 
When I uh, look at especially the catechumens, I think of how I would like to know the story of each one of them. Um, it's a marvelous uh, uh, history of the, what the Holy Spirit has done in their lives. I'm quite confident to bring them to this moment. Uh, and I wish I knew the story of each one of them, which mm. is not possible. But then I think about how uh, at the end of the world, at the last judgment, uh, we'll have enough time, we'll have mm -hmm. an infinite amount of time, and I can hear everybody's story, and mm -hmm. that will be a great joy. <laughs> so beautiful. Yeah. I know I was I was blessed this year, Archbishop. I had actually never attended that right uh, before, and this year I did, because I uh, recently just took on uh, running the OCIA at, at the parish that I work at. So I was there and uh, saw you from a distance and got to call out the the names of the catechumens and candidates and just a beautiful, beautiful ceremony, beautiful rite. And um, it was really cool to see them all kind of come forward to, to write their names in the book of life as well. And that book is then presented to you, just a lot of beautiful symbolism. And and I know for the, the candidates and catechumens that I was working with, they, they felt it very, very powerful, very powerful experience for them. And I think they, they told me anyway that this was like, wow, this is getting real now. You know, like they just, it felt like it was, this is the big, big thing. And it was really cool for them to see you uh, themselves are like, oh, we're glad we signed up for this one, not with the other bishops. Nothing against the other bishops. <laughs> but they're, they're very happy to be there with you, Archbishop. So, Oh, yeah. well, okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, we, so, so, Mike, what, did, what, yeah. was the, what was the grace for you in this as a, cat, a catechist? I, if yeah. you remember, I uh, make a point in, at the beginning of my preaching as a preface to call out the, uh, yeah. give a shout out to the catechist. I think it's such an important time to support you. What, what I mean, do you feel like, a, do you feel like a, something like a parent or? A, a, yeah, a, I'd say what, so. A big brother, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, a little bit of both, you know? I mean, I would say, yeah, because you're kind of, you know, so I just kind of mid-year uh, took this on because of a little change-up of staffing here at our parish. And so now I've taken on OCIA. And um, I mean, even though I kind of started in a little bit later, you develop a relationship with these people. You, I, I am blessed to have heard their story and, and why they're sitting there and why they are intending and desiring to become Catholic. And so just knowing all of that and then seeing them at this at this right and and seeing how excited they are by it it is it is a really cool experience to be on on this side of it you know it was funny when so many like um the word catechist and catechumen and cata we have a lot of cata words and so i just remember <laughs> at the moment when you asked the catechist to all rise i think three or four of our catechumens stood up oh, and then and like half the people were looking at them and be like sit down sit down you're not supposed to be <laughs> oh, that's funny. when you were saying about that moment i was like that's what came to my mind was my catechumen standing even though thinking they were catechists and I went up and told them I was like maybe you're being prophetic maybe in the future you're going to be yes. catechists and uh so anyway yeah no it's, it's a really cool feeling on the side of being a catechist archbishop and the other thing I think about is uh, and this was very much one of the themes in my preaching is the the radical commitment that's involved uh, there are so many people who think of membership in the church as a kind of a uh, a cultural uh enrichment mm -hmm. uh, you know some people do pilates and other people go to church right. but right. this is a this is a it's this is a subversive act it, it subverts the world and uh, there are even today places where this would get you killed yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. and that uh, 
that threat of being yeah. uh, killed is something that even though it's so very unlikely for us, mm -hmm. it's something that uh, serves as a paradigm for what's involved in uh, making a commitment to be a disciple. Mm -hmm. oh. And it's so powerful. I mean, I know even some of the sponsors and people that have been Catholic their whole life and they happen to be there, um, you know, they, they said, man, more Catholics. I, I'd never seen this or other Catholics, they, they don't know about this. This is a really cool thing they should know about. And so I wanted to just bring special attention in our show today about it. So, so thank you. Oh, you're welcome. It's a great blessing to have been there. And, and I'm glad you decided to come to the one I presided at. <laughs> me too, me too. <laughs> you know, whenever we talk about something like this, I always think of the word hope. Like I find um, those movements of the church to be so very hope-filled. And it's exciting because today we get to talk about baptism. And that leads so nicely, the right of election, into what we're going to discuss today. Um, it's a timely thing to discuss during Lent, as we'll be preparing for the celebration of the Paschal Vigil this Easter. I wanted to know, Archbishop Vigneron, if you could walk us through a little bit what happens at baptism and kind of an overview of this sacrament as we dive into discussion. Mary, are you talking about what happens as the elements of the rite, or are you, want to, are you talking about the, uh, the effects of baptism? I'm thinking maybe both of them. So perhaps we could start first with the rite itself and then move into the effects of baptism. Well, um, I mean, actually, for the catechumens, the rite of baptism has already begun with election, and there mm. will be between now and... Uh, the Easter Vigil, various ceremonies that sort of take them uh, forward step by step. Uh, for uh, the baptism of infants, these are compressed. And uh, I think baptism of, of infants is what most people are used to, so we can talk mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the rite consists in uh, parents and godparents presenting the child, affirming that uh, this is their will, that the child be baptized in the faith, because there can be no baptism without faith. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, an infant is baptized in the faith of the parents. There's, uh, beside, there's reading from the sacred scripture, of course, because the word of God is, what, is how we know what God is going to do uh, when he performs the sacrament. Uh, there's an anointing that uh, symbolizes uh, the, uh, the uh, one to be baptized as a kind of a, a, an athlete uh, taking on the strain that comes with uh, uh, serving Christ. This is the oil of catechumens. This is before the Easter Vigil for adults. This is done at another sort of ceremony. Hmm. Um, for adults, at some point uh, between... Uh, the rite of election and uh, the Easter Vigil. There's also the giving over of the Apostles' Creed uh, with uh, the ritual admonition to memorize this. Mm. Uh, there is an exorcism uh, in both rites, for right for infants and the right for adults, uh, to claim this person as uh, no longer part of uh, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, and taken up, uh, will be taken up uh, through baptism into a new citizenship, uh, a, the citizenship of the new Jerusalem. Mm. And then 
very, very important before the actual ritual baptism is uh, the uh, profession of faith. And it, it's always done as a question. Uh, we, the priest, the bishop, the deacon does not say to, if it's an adult, to the mm -hmm. catechumen, or if it's a child, to the godparents, what do you believe? The, the, the celebrant says, puts it in terms of, do you believe that? Do you believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, Creator of Heaven? Do you believe what the church believes? Mm. And uh, you ha it's only in virtue of the saying yes mm -hmm. that the baptism can go forward. Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, in a book he wrote many years before he became uh, even a bishop, points out that this is uh, the very... Uh, structure of the life of the church. People don't come into the church on the basis of uh, what they articulate. Mm -hmm. uh, people come into the church on the basis of accepting uh, the faith that Jesus has entrusted to the church. So there's a threefold profession of faith, faith in the Father, faith in the Son, faith in the Holy Spirit. These are the elements of the Apostles' Creed. And then there's, uh, before that, there's a threefold renunciation of Satan. I should have mm. mentioned that first. There's a, uh, a renunciation of Satan and then a, a profession of the faith of the church. And then uh, there's one last time the celebrant says, is this what you want? And then comes uh, the baptism. And uh, the the more primordial form is a, a threefold immersion into mm -hmm. the water, uh, which very vividly symbolizes going down into death with Christ to rise to new life with Christ. Mm. And then if, if it's not by uh, uh, immersion, then it's by the pouring of water on, on the head of the one to be baptized. And that's a threefold pouring as well. And uh, the uh, one to be baptized is baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, uh, the, t the very formula taken from the gospel. Uh, and being to be baptized into the death of Christ is to be brought into relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we're already, I see, you know, talking about the effects of baptism. Yeah. Baptism does a number of things, and each thing it does does other things. I mean, <laughs> I mean it, makes, it makes a person a member of the church. It makes a person a member of the church by being adopted uh, by God the Father in the Son uh, through the Holy Spirit. Uh, it uh, causes the Holy Trinity to dwell within uh, the, uh, the, the newly baptized. Uh, a very shorthand way to talk about this is it infuses sanctifying grace, which is another way which involves as well removal of original sin and any other sin that might have been committed. Uh, because original sin means uh, being born without being a friend of God and being oriented as an enemy of God. And so the gift of sanctifying grace removes that enmity 
and creates friendship, uh, really filial relationship, sonship and daughtership with God. So that's one way to talk about it. Mm. I know there's so much, there's so much depth to this sacrament, obviously, and I, and I know like there's this kind of this doorway analogy or thought, which I know uh, the Catechism, in fact, calls it really a gateway to life in the Spirit and a door which gives access to the other sacraments. Also, I know like Pope Francis, for example, calls baptism the door that permits Christ the Lord to make his dwelling in us and allows us to immerse ourselves into this mystery. Obviously, mm-hmm. this ties very, very much to what you were just saying and sharing, Archbishop, but um, I don't know, what, is there anything more that you think these quotes kind of mean uh, based off of what you were sharing earlier? Well, I like, uh, I mean, let's, what the the Holy Father talks about, this door that permits Christ to make his dwelling in us. Mm, yeah. um, you know, the, uh, this highlights the idea that it's the beginning of a great adventure. Uh, I think about this uh, when I baptize someone. Uh, where will this lead? I have no idea hmm. how God will cause to grow in the life, in the heart and mind of the, this new disciple, uh, the uh, image of Christ in the world, how th- this person will make Christ present. But it will happen as long as this person cooperates with uh, her, his baptismal grace. It's it's another way to talk about it. It's kind of a it's a gate. It's a door. It's also a kind of a a, a launch. It's a um, launching yeah. pad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the New Testament, we hear again and again this call to repent and be baptized, and we also see references to people believing and accepting Christ in order to be baptized. Some Christian denominations use this as a reason to withhold baptism from infants and children. And I know you all uh, uh, referenced a little bit of the difference between the rites when you're moving an adult through baptism or a child. Why does the Catholic Church baptize infants and not wait until they're adults in their experience of faith as adults? Well, this is a a practice that uh, we have certainly from uh, those who were disciples of uh, the apostles. It's very clear. And there's very good evidence in the New Testament that from the the apostles themselves baptized infants. Uh, There's so many references that... uh, uh, so-and-so was baptized along with the whole household. Uh, uh, one, think, for example, of Lydia, the woman who had her uh, business in, in purple textiles, or yep. we think of uh, Cornelius. So um, this, we, we, we have the practice from the apostles, and so we know it's a, a valid practice. What does it mean? It, it's a very potent uh, manifestation of the truth that uh, the gift of new life is a grace and it's not earned. We don't baptize just anybody, but mm-hmm. we uh, ordinarily we insist that uh, uh, the child, the infant to be baptized will be raised in the faith. It's not fair uh, for that child to be uh, taken into the responsibility of Christian discipleship without a, uh, a, um, a well-founded hope that the child will learn what it means. Mm-hmm. And so the child is given the grace of repentance. 
the the child is given as a free gift through the agency of the, at the request of his, of his disciple parents uh, this free gift of uh, uh, harmony of uh, friendship with God of adoption and uh, the child then will be able being catechized in the family uh, mm-hmm. to to appropriate that gift more and more into her or his uh, personal life this is another nuanced question a little bit that goes uh, maybe a bit deeper into this understanding of ages for receiving the sacraments. In the Western Rite, baptism is followed by catechesis before one receives the First Communion, the First Communion and Confirmation. But in the Eastern Rites, baptism is immediately followed by confirmation in the Eucharist. Do you know a little bit of the history of why that is? What my understanding is that it has to do with uh, the, the, in the, the, church of the, West, the churches of the West, having a sense that they wanted uh, bishops to be engaged in the initiation of everybody who uh, has been baptized. Mm-hmm. So even though uh, the church grew in su- to, in, to such a degree that the bishops couldn't be the ordinary ministers of everybody's baptism, mm-hmm. uh, the sealing of baptism in confirmation was reserved to the bishop. Whereas in the Eastern churches, uh, those that uh, come from, have their practices that come from Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, uh, Baghdad, mm-hmm. uh, they, they made their judgment that it was more important for the confirmation to occur immediately after baptism. Interesting. So we separated them. And the order, until the time of Pius X, the, the, the primordial order of baptism, confirmation, and Holy Eucharist was observed even in the West. Oh, so okay. uh, when First Holy Communion was still around the age of 12, the children were confirmed before they made the First Holy Communion. Oh, but when Pius X moved First Holy Communion uh, to the Age of Reason, mm-hmm. uh, we didn't move confirmation uh, before First Holy Communion. That is very interesting to understand some of the history of that. So that's good. You know, I know in today's uh, day and age, there's, there's unfortunately so many people that are not bringing their children forward to be baptized as infants and stuff. And so I know sometimes it leads a family member who is devout and uh, who is faithful to kind of try to figure out maybe should they or, or if they may try to baptize the infant without the parent's permission, you know? So that's the first kind of question is like, who can baptize? And, and is that is that something that can be done, Archbishop? And how should that whole thing work? Who should really be baptizing? Well, Mike, there's, there's a lot of ways to understand can. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just on the basis of who has the power to baptize. Um, legally, in the Latin, in the Western churches, ordinarily it's a bit the bishops, the priests, or the deacons. I think in the Eastern churches, uh, deacons do not ordinarily baptize. I'm not, I think that's the case. Hmm. But uh, anyone in, emer- in an emergency can baptize, and even someone who is not uh, a believer can baptize, as long as that person uh, intends to do what the church intends 
and performs uh, the pouring of water and the proper saying of the form, the proper matter and the proper form. So that's that's just the basic kind of can. Mm. Um, it is not appropriate for a grandparent uh, to baptize uh, a child uh, unbeknownst to or without the, the permission of uh, the child's parents. Right, uh, right. That's, it, it's, uh, it's, you're putting the child into a situation that's really untenable. That, mm. it, that really is the call, that's the responsibility of the parents to present the child to, to the parish priest for baptism. And what will happen is the priest will ask the parents, well, you know, if this is going to go forward, you can't be putting your child into a situation that's unfair to the child. How this child takes on responsibilities, uh, a, a new dignity by this new identity, and it's not fair to give this child this identity if there's uh, not the ordinary hope that she'll be able to know what's involved and grow mm -hmm. into it. Now that leads to another question that I know sometimes will come up in Catholic circles, and I think it's important to touch on knowing the importance of baptism. What happens if a person dies without being baptized? What What's kind of our, our theology or our understanding around that? We don't know. Mm -hmm. All, we don't know for sure. Mm -hmm. All we do know is that uh, however we talk about the death of the unbaptized, uh, we, we have to... Uh, uh, continue to say what our Lord told us, that baptism mm. is ordinarily necessary, but we also acknowledge that God loves this uh, unbaptized infant mm -hmm. and will care for, for this infant. And there are various theories uh, about uh, how God shows his mercy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, for a while, a very common one was to talk about limbo, which yeah. is that the child has a kind of uh, creaturely happiness. Most theologians think that uh, that's not a, an appropriate way to think about the mercy of God. Right. And so a very common theory today is that at some uh, particular moment in passing out of this world, God gives the, uh, the unbaptized, the soul of the unbaptized child, the opportunity to make a choice. Huh, yeah. But there are, the theologians have a number of ways of talking about how God's mercy might work, but the church has not given any official statement on that. Right. But the two things we do know for sure mm -hmm. is that baptism is ordinarily necessary for salvation, yep. and that in a, God, God is always loving yeah. and will use whatever extraordinary... Uh, uh, methods are uh, at his disposal to care for 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 everyone. I love I love the way that you answered that question. I feel like sometimes it's a hard thing to answer, right? And so um, the ordinarily necessary, but that our God is you know would use whatever extraordinary means necessary, um, and then it's a mystery, right? And and we don't know. And saying that we don't know, I think, is sometimes um, important. Right, and as much as uh, the mother and father 
loved that little baby. Right. God loves that baby more. Yep. Yep. So as hard as that might be to to really think. I mean, I can can imagine if I were a dad to to think that the heavenly Father loves my baby more than I do. But yeah. it is true. Yep. Hmm. Archbishop, that kind of leads to a question that I wanted to ask about. Is um, have you ever? kind of experienced or witnessed or celebrated maybe a particularly moving baptism, like one that really struck you, one that sticks out and you remember? No, Mike, I don't, uh, not anyone in particular. What I do think about when I baptize is uh, go, going back to that idea of a door or a portal. Uh, mm. I think about where this is going to go. I, I think about, for example, what it must have been the case of, say, uh, the priest who baptized Carol Wojtyla, uh -huh. or mm. I think about the priest who baptized Mother Teresa, yeah. and I'm sure they weren't very clear about where it would all go, mm -hmm. right. but it went someplace great. And uh, when I baptize, I that, that's what uh, very often I think about uh, what God will this seed that. Uh, through this sacrament that he's planting, this seed of grace, uh, what it will, the, what it will uh, blossom into. It's so funny that you bring up Carol Wojtyla, and I, I had this profound experience. We got to go to uh, Vadovice, and I'm sure I'm slaughtering the pronunciation of that, uh, where Pope John Paul II was baptized, and his baptismal picture, I remember, I was probably 19 or 20, um, just staring at that picture and looking at his face and being uh, overwhelmed by God's plan for each of us. And that at that moment, you know, he was already putting into motion this great leader of our church who was so significant personally to me. And it was so, at 19, 20 years old, I took a picture of the picture of his baptism that was in the church because I did feel that so profoundly. Like, And I'm sure as a, as a priest, when you're baptizing babies, it's so interesting when you use the language, like a launch point, like where will this child's faith lead? And um, and that gateway to this, this life of sanctity with God. It's a really beautiful thing to think about. And John Paul II in particular, St. John Paul II, that picture, I can picture it right now in my mind, looking at his little baby face and being like, he's, he's you know, going to significantly change the world and our faith, you know? So it's really exciting. Mike, well, what about you? Has, go ahead, go ahead, Archbishop. Mike, go on. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, do you have like a moment that was profound around baptism or any moment like that that you can recall? Um, you know, I've been blessed to be a godfather seven times now. So um, in those Expert times, Catholic. you know, you just, you know, I don't pity. I don't know what it is. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I know it's it's been a real blessing to be, like I said, a godfather seven times. And most of them have been my friends or, or close family, of course. And um, the fact that they, they chose me to be there, which is awesome. But then also, you know, um, seeing them and, and their desire for their child, um, at the onset of it. I remember in particular, there's a, this is actually about you, Mary. It wasn't the baptism. I am a godfather to one of Mary's children, uh, her youngest Juju, but there's a great picture of, I believe, is it, is it, uh, Joey? Is, no, it's Malia's it, or, baptism. I think. Malia's baptism. There's yes. an awesome picture of, um, Mary, very, very, very excited. Look on her face, Archbishop, <laughs> as, uh, as Father Mario Amore is pouring water over, 
uh, her daughter Malia for baptism. And like, it's just, it's comical how, how, how ridiculously excited Mary's face is in this picture, <laughs> but it's, it's been used as an icon, an example, if you will, of like how excited we should be about this new life that they're entering into. Uh, and that launch point, you know? So, yeah. And Archbishop, I love what you said there about this this idea of mystery. When Jesus himself, you know, went to the disciples in the seashore and said, hey, follow me, they had no idea what they were signing up for. You know, there was this deep mystery that was laid out before them, and yet they they still went. And I think, you know, you've linked that kind of with this uh, launching of baptism, which is kind of a cool mystery there. I like that. So good. Well, isn't uh, that uh, one of the the great uh, elements of the good news that we offer to our world today, that life can be so significant. It can, mm-hmm. it can be this great adventure. When, uh, as I read the data and, and the sociological analysis, so many people feel that their life is cramped and, and meaningless, that there is no, no uh, great... Uh, adventure that lies ahead of people. It, uh, this is, our, our lives mean, in the mind of God, our lives will mean so much more than many people even realize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the, the other thing I wanted to pick, you know, you talk about Mary's face. <laughs> this takes me back to infant baptism. Uh-huh. Imagine I mean, part of why we have infant baptism is the instinct of uh, Christian parents who want this identity, who uh, this uh, gift for their children, and uh, that inspiration uh, is confirmed by the practice of infant baptism. Hmm. That what what disciples want for their children is the right thing. For, mm. for the church to give them. Imagine how disappointed you would be, Mary, if you were told, well, no, no, she can't be baptized. Right. She, she can't oh. be a Christian. Right. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's such a gift for a parent to be able to, uh, to be able to bring their child to that particular sacrament. And what a, what a gift from the church to be able to do that with our children. And they are, I always say baptism days are the best days. I, in our family, they're just, I mean, I don't necessarily get teared up thinking about when my children were born always, but when I think about their baptism days, I do like immediately tears come to my eyes. Just the beauty of it. Um, it's its such a gift. So, yeah. And there's an, in, I mean, I, when I baptized an infant, I, I think the rite even makes the point that fathers and mothers have given their children just this wonderful gift of life, but there's an even greater life that mm-hmm. only God can give them, and they bring them to the baptismal font so that uh, what they know is even better than what they've done, God will will uh, accomplish in the life of the child. Yeah. Mm. So true. Archbishop, I wanted to ask, was there anything else you wanted to add to this topic, or anything else you wanted to make sure you mentioned regarding uh, baptism? We've, we've had a good conversation, I think. A couple of <laughs> yeah, laughs. So. That's been yeah, nice. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. I'll send you that picture, Archbishop Ignoran. It's a funny one. Um, Father yeah. Mario had it in his office for a really long time at his wall because we were both so excited. Yeah, it's it's almost ridiculous in some ways, Archbishop, <laughs> but that's the point. And that's why uh, Father Mario, he actually used it as like a kind of a catechetical moment when he was like teaching or talking to parents about <laughs> baptism. He was like, this is what your face should look like, you know, and, and 
most people it, it would evoke usually a laughter and uh, yeah. so it was really good so good but, so good well, Mr. Bishop, I wanted to ask if uh, there was anything specific that we can keep in mind uh, for you in prayer, uh, your prayer intentions for this next month. I think particularly pray for all of us, uh, bishops, priests, and deacons, uh, for uh, God to bless our ministry and make it fruitful in these days of Lent. Mm. Uh, this is a time of great, uh, intense pastoral service, uh, mm. and particularly the service of the sacrament of penance reconciliation and uh, that not only that we uh, approach the ministry with uh, energy but wisdom that uh, we have uh, light about how to uh, assist our brothers and sisters in coming closer to Christ and able to celebrate the Easter mysteries with renewed uh, commitment. You got it. We will definitely keep that in prayer and in mind, Archbishop. And if I might ask you to uh, close us with a prayer and blessing, that'd be wonderful. Lord God, we give you praise and thanks for this acceptable time, these days of salvation. We thank you especially for the elect catechumens, for our brothers and sisters, the candidates. We ask that all of us will walk together with ever-growing devotion and love of the heart of Jesus so that we will celebrate the Easter vigil, the Easter feast with, uh, with great joy, the joy you want to give us. O Mary, Queen of the Apostles, pray for us. Pray for us. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Archbishop. You're welcome. Stay tuned for the next episode of Eyes on Jesus, a new episode every month. And if you enjoyed listening, you might also like Beyond Sundays, a new podcast from the Archdiocese of Detroit. Find it on your favorite podcast app.